We're going to be together in Psalm 34. Psalm 34 obviously is not in our line of, uh, of verses that we study through. We should be uh, somewhere around Psalm 44 this week. Uh, I intentionally want to take time uh, every couple of, uh, of every several weeks and uh, stay in Psalm 34. I remind you, Psalm 34 is our theme for the year. Psalm 34 is where we take the text that uh, is kind of guiding and governing the vision of our church this year. And by vision, I mean uh, that we would have a heart to elevate and magnify the Lord. And we find so clearly here in our scripture, I want you to look at Psalm 34 with me. We're going to look uh, specifically at the 8th and the 10th verse, uh, but I want to grab the whole context of the passage. So let's read that together this evening. If you would look on, I'll read aloud, or if you want to read aloud, it won't disrupt me. So you go ahead and read out loud as well. Uh, We're going to be in Psalm 34, verse number 1. The psalmist says this, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked unto him and were lightened and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encampeth around about them that fear him, and delivereth them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. O fear the Lord, ye his saints, for there is no want to them that fear him. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. Come, ye children, hearken unto me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is he that desireth life and loveth many days, that he may see good? Keep thy tongue from evil and thy lips from speaking guile. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are open unto their cry. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord heareth, and delivereth them out of all their troubles. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. He keepeth all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and they that hate the righteous shall be desolate. The Lord redeemeth the soul of of his servants, and none of them that trust in him shall be desolate. Lord, we love you. Bless the reading of your word tonight. Bless us as we get into the preaching, and help us, Lord, as we understand your word. We want to walk away here tonight with a better understanding of Psalm 34 and the psalmist who wrote it, more importantly, of the God he speaks of. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. The little header above Psalm 34 says this, a psalm of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, who drove him away and he departed. You see, this particular text has a context. It has a a place and a time in which this was written, and David is writing this 
in, right after this event in his life. Some of you might remember the, uh, the surrounding environment of the time he had with Abimelech. And by the way, Psalm 34 is a gift in the fact that it reveals to us what a good man like David, a, a, a solid man like David, a man of faith like David, uh, it, it shows us what happens when a man who is at, at following the Lord and loving the Lord begins to respond in fear and begins to react in fear. It demonstrates for us the lengths at which that man following the Lord will go to when he replaces his faith and puts in fear. You see, David uh, allows us in the in the text of Abimelech and uh, what he does with Abimelech to understand the action, but it is here in this psalm that we understand the mind behind it or the thoughts that were going on with it. And so David allows us in Psalm 34 to understand his failure. And I do call it a failure. Uh, it was a failure of David's. We could even call it a sin of David's because David re- did not re- react. He did not put himself in uh, in the place he was at because of faith. He put himself there because of fear. After David killed Goliath, David became something of a, of a heartthrob, became something of a sensation for the people of Israel. He was, he was the uh, modern-day superstar. In fact, they had songs that were sung about David, something along the lines of David has slain his, uh, or Saul has slain his thousands, David has slain his tens of thousands, and, and there was these, these chants that were made up about David. Now, for a small man like Saul, this was a little bit disheartening. Da- Saul wanted him. And enjoyed being the king. He enjoyed being the head honcho. He enjoyed being the number one guy. And all of a sudden, this young upstart comes along, and, and he hears the voices of his people not singing the grandeur of Saul, but rather singing praises to a man like David. This eats at the thoughts and eats at the logic of a man like Saul. And all David was doing was doing what God called him to do. A little shepherd boy went down into the valley face to face with a giant and struck the giant down, taking the giant's very own sword and beheading the giant, the very very man of war. He has destroyed him. And and it was a, a mighty thing and a glorious thing and a thing that honored and pleased the name of Jehovah among his enemies, and Saul just could not deal with it. You fast forward a little bit, the the anger of Saul towards David, the bitterness of Saul towards David. And by the way, if you wonder if, if bitterness will eat at you, you can look at the life of Saul and you find a man that went from being disgruntled and having his feelings hurt to a man who was able to even commit murder. This is what bitterness will do in the heart and mind of anyone that will allow it room. And Saul has has allowed room for bitterness in his heart. And and. Saul's bitterness is now developed into an anger and a malice aimed specifically at David. In fact, he takes a couple of chances to try to remove David from uh, from his presence with a spear. He tries to kill David in two separate events and then begins to chase him, not only from his home where he was married to Saul's daughter. He chases him from his daughter and then uh, gives his daughter to someone else. And we find David is, is now running the countryside trying to get away from Saul, trying to hide from Saul and and to abstain from Saul's presence. And, And David begins to get concerned and heartbroken 
uh, one of the uh, places that Saul uh, David would go is to a place uh, where the uh, where the priests held the sword of Goliath. While he was there, he asked uh, the high priest. He asked the priest, "Do you have a weapon here?" He says, "All we have is the sword of Goliath." He gives him the very sword of Goliath. Keep that in mind uh, because David is going to pretend to be crazy, whereas David might actually be crazy then to take that very sword into Gath to try to find a place to hide. He goes into the Philistine land. He heads his way into the Philistines, and after David has been chased and, and hunted and haunted by Saul, he is he is truly at the place where he is heartbroken because he has nowhere to go. Now, David was no small enemy of the people of the Philistines. He has killed their warrior which led Israel to then to decimate the armies of the Philistines. On another point, Saul commissions David to the killing of 30,000 soldiers so that uh, he would bring them back to Jerusalem, either dead or alive. And, and uh, David has, been, has spent the largest portion of his career hunting Philistines. Now David is an enemy of the Philistines, yet fear of Saul has driven him to try to find his security and safety with the Philistines. You say, wait a second, preacher. I don't think that David should have gone to the Philistines. No, I don't think David should have either. The reality is is that the Philistines were the enemy of God. And the only reason David had to go to the Philistines was because he was afraid that somehow Saul would find him. And you know, as well as I do, the Bible answer, the Sunday school answer, no, I'm not saying it's the easiest answer, but the, but the answer that is right is for David to trust God. Now, David fails to trust God. And instead, David, instead of being that rock-hard man of faith, following after the Lord, trusting the Lord, he, he goes and tries to make, a, a, uh, tries to make a, a, an agreement with the enemies of God. He tries to make an enemy with the very king the Bible says here, Abimelech. Now, Abimelech is a, a general phrase. The word Abimelech is not, not actually a name. Uh, it could be better rendered king because it's, Abimelech was a position. So David is now standing before Achish who held the office of Abimelech. He held the office of king. It was a position of rulership or a position of a right to the throne. And so that is who is, uh, he is speaking to. He is, he is going to go and try to make a peace treaty with the man who, who he has been hunting the armies of the Philistines to this point. But because of fear, he tries to go and make a, a, uh, an agreement with Abimelech, the king, if you would, of the Philistines of Gath. And by the way, his plan might have worked. His plan might have worked, except the Philistines remembered David. They remembered that little boy in the valley with a sling and a stone. They remembered the stories and the songs. Maybe they even remembered the sword that David was carrying on his hip. Maybe there was, there was this, this very fearful man who has forgotten that he was carrying the Goliath sword with him as he traveled. It's a, he forgets that my name has been sung a million times. David is slain as tens of thousands. Tens of thousands of who? The Philistines. And so you find here that, that David has put himself in a bad position as he stands before this king, the king he's trying to make peace with to protect him from Saul, that very 
king begins to hear the murmuring of the people. You, you tell me this is the David. This is the David that killed Goliath. This is the David that killed those soldiers. This is the David. David is left in a position. A position where he has found himself in. Unlike Goliath, one author said this. When, he, when David stood before Goliath, he stood there because of his faith. He stood there in the will of God. But when he stood before Abimelech, he stood in the will of David. You see, he could stand before Goliath because of faith, but he couldn't even stand before Abimelech because he knew he was doing it in fear. You see, God hadn't directed David to go and stand before Abimelech. God hadn't directed David like he did before Goliath. No, he was not standing here on an order from God, from heaven. He was standing here because he could not, in his earthly mind, measure out how he could overcome this obstacle. So David stands there. The Bible tells us to be able to get out, he begins to act insane. He goes crazy. He's yelling and screaming. He's spitting and foaming at the mouth. He, he barks like a dog and, he, and snorts and makes all kinds of noises. He paws at the ground. He tears at his clothes. And, and he begins to scrape the walls and smash the decorations. He just goes completely insane to the point that it completely offends Abimelech, Achish, the king of the Philistine. He has completely offended the royal family of the, of the Abimelech. And so he is thrown out. He's thrown out. In fact, that little tag puts it so succinctly. The little tag right before verse number one says, who drove him away, Abimelech, who drove him away, and he, David, departed. That's how simple it was when he finally proved he had lost his mind. This text is not trying to prove that David did not lose his mind. Maybe David had. The reality is, is that David could have stood before God and instead chose to stand before his very enemies. He could have gone into the presence of his king and instead he stood before the king of this world. David has made a grave error, has made a massive failure. He has made a failure of faith. And the Bible tells us, according to the New Testament, that which is not of faith is sin. David has failed of his faith. It is here that we find the writing of Psalm 34. It is not of David who has acted like a fool or David who has acted in his sin. It's not even a man who is still in fear. Instead, this is a David who looks at the situation and says, my my failure to believe God, my failure to trust God, my failure to have faith in God took me to a place that almost cost me my life. And if I have my life today, it is not because of me. I was the one that was putting myself at risk. If I am standing before you today, it is for one reason and one reason only, and it is because God watched over me. God was good to me. God demonstrated love to me. God demonstrated mercy to me. I should have died. Those men should have killed me. That king should have ended my life. And I tell you today that I wish I had trusted God. I wish I I had believed God, but since I didn't, God was good to spare me. You find it in the text that we're in tonight. As a matter of fact, you can look with me 
At this overarching reality, verse number 8 tells us, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. David, why did you go to King Abimelech instead of trusting God? Well, because I was not blessed because I did not trust God. I had set myself outside of the blessings of God because I refused to place my trust in God. In other words, David is drawing a direct line between our willingness to trust God and the blessings that come from God. And by the way, this is not the only time in Scripture you find this. In fact, this is a major theme throughout the Word of God, and that is that there are specific blessings planned for the one who will trust in God. And I'm not speaking just of general trusting of God. I'm talking about the very eternal salvation of your soul is set aside and set apart for those who, as John 3 16 would say, believeth on the Lord Jesus Christ. I tell you tonight that every great blessing in the life of the believer comes from the result of one thing, and that is whether or not you are willing to trust in God. David says, blessed, happy, uh, 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 anointed is the man who will trust in God. God. And here we find David who has recognized the spoil that could have come to his life if he had not been delivered by God's grace. And all of that destruction would have been because one thing, he refused to trust in his God. So we find David on the other side of this failure to trust. And as he looks back over that scenario, he says, I need you to know, I wish I had done the right thing. I wish I had trusted in God. You see, easy enough for us is it to believe that since David made it, well, then we could all probably do that and make it. Now, David is saying to us, listen, I have lived without God's blessings, and if you wish to have his blessings, choose to trust him. Choose to abandon fear. Choose to trust God. Choose to put God first. Choose to make sure that you're not trusting in yourself or trusting in your coworker or trusting in your spouse, but that you are trusting in God alone. Is in this text. As we saw earlier this year, these three verses packed together, we, we, we draw out this principle I want to place in front of you tonight, and that is that we elevate God when others come to know him as Father. We elevate God when others come to know him as Father. I love how David opens the eighth verse. This beautiful picture is placed in front of us in that eighth verse, something that is so easy for us to miss and so easy for us to bypass. But I want you to understand tonight that God has a desire for his people to tell others about him to tell others about his plan for them, to tell others that they could place their trust in him. You see, when we reach the eighth verse, this is what David is doing. David is calling others all around him, anyone that would read the text, to place their trust in Jehovah God, that they would no longer trust themselves or trust the situation or trust even their enemies, but that they would learn to place their trust 
in God. And so David is calling them like an evangelist of old. He is declaring the goodness of God and calling people to come and place their trust in him. Can I tell you we do the same thing today? I had an opportunity this week to go and spend a little bit of time uh, in Leewood, Kansas. And I'm so grateful for the church plant there in Leewood. It was such a blessing to get to see uh, Brother Keith and Miss Melissa there and the kids, and, and uh, we sure love that ministry. I'm so grateful for them. I hope you pray for them every day. And, and uh, they have a church uh, that is uh, from, from uh, one of the Carolinas there uh, that has come all the, way to, to, all the way to Leewood, Kansas, to help them canvas and spend a, a week with them, just blessing the, the drinkards and blessing Ironwood Baptist Church. And we're so grateful for churches like this that would come and and spend time with them, and uh, we got to—I got to meet them and their pastor, and spend a little bit of time with their youth group there. And uh, and it really is an encouragement and a blessing to get to see what God is doing in the church plant there at Ironwood Baptist Church. Got to spend some time this morning with uh, with Pastor Kennard, who's up at Meriden and uh, is is planting the church there, Cottonwood Baptist Church. And it's such a blessing to me to get to partner with him and, and our church to partner with the church there in Longview, Texas, as we see this church in Meriden planted. God is good, and I'm so thankful that we get to be a part of spreading the gospel to all areas of our country, including areas that are right here in our back door. It was a, a blessing this, this weekend to have Brother Tim Drinkard, who's been home for a few months, and I'm so grateful he was in stateside when COVID-19 began, because uh, I know Panama is going through some great uh, uh, troubles right now, and, and I think of the churches that we want to see planted there, and, and my prayer, my hope, my heart is that we would be able to still, in 2020, see a church planted there in, uh, in the Uvisa district of the jungle. My, my, these are the thoughts on our heart and on our mind. Why? Because we want, a, we want a church planted there that will preach the gospel and declare God's goodness. Why? Because it is at the heartbeat of all that God has done that there would be those who call the lost to come and see that God is good. It was a blessing Sunday morning to see Brother Schmidt here and, and have him preach from the pulpit. If you didn't catch that service, I, I encourage you to go back and listen to that message. I know it'll be an encouragement to your heart and, and a blessing to you, but we want to see churches planted in Brazil through the Schmidt family. And you say, why do we want so badly to be a part of spreading the gospel all over the world and all over the country? And, and I think of our outreach efforts here in Topeka, Kansas, and the need for the lost souls of Topeka to come to know Christ, and, and the need for you to be spreading the gospel everywhere you go. Why is this? Because there is a world that is dying, not because they, don't, because they have a disease, but they are dying because of the result of sin in their life, and they need a Savior to wash them clean of it. I tell you tonight that it is an incredible thing that God has allowed us to be a part of one of the most important jobs that's ever been given to us, and that is that we could tell others about the goodness of our God. This is the call of verse number eight. The cry of verse number eight, if you look there with me again tonight, hear the beautiful poetic way that David calls people to come and see how good God is. He says, taste and see. Taste and see that the Lord is good. I love that he calls us to taste and see. Why? Why is it that taste is so important? Taste and see. I, I, he doesn't say come and behold. He doesn't say come and witness. 
taste and see. I don't know about you, but I don't taste with my eyes. I don't see with my taste buds. Uh, These are two totally different things. David is asking for two different uh, modes of relating to the Lord. He says, I want you to taste what God is doing, and I want you to see what God is doing. And from tasting and seeing, I want you to know that God is good. And by the way, it is the action of God that tells us he is good. It is the interaction that we have with him that we can taste what he is doing and we can see what he is doing and it tells our hearts that God is in fact good because even a child would be known by his doings. I tell you, our God in heaven is known by his doings. You see, David makes an invitation to share a joyful testimony. He makes an invitation that he might share a joyful testimony. David has experienced the goodness of God, and he invites all the readers of this psalm to come and see what David has seen. It's a beautiful metaphor because taste is so personal to us. Taste is so unique to us. We, we, uh, we, we even use the phraseology in our, in our language today. We even use the terms of our taste. Well, that's just not my taste. That's not the thing I like. It's not, it's not the way. We even talk about having to develop a taste for something. And uh, I'm not a coffee drinker. Many of you know this. And some people say, well, you just have to let the taste grow on you. That's the problem. I don't want anything growing on me. That's why I stay away from the stuff. Uh, the reality is, is that, that, I, that you and I, we use these ideas of, of taste and, and things that are unique to us because that's what a taste is. It is something personal to you and I as we experience life. Uh, one author has said this, taste and sight are physical senses, ways in which we interact with the material word, world. In some ways, faith is a spiritual sense by which we, act, we, we acclimate to the spiritual world. Taste and see are like trusting God, loving God, seeking God, looking to God. It's been said, this quote I want to share with you tonight, this quote is, taste, consider it seriously and thoroughly and affectionately. Make trial of it by your own and others' experiences. This is opposed by those slight and vanishing thoughts which men have of it, one commentary says. This is opposed by those slight and vanishing thoughts which men have it. In other words, that David is calling on us not just to merely interact with it and then move on and forget. When he says taste, he's saying, I want you to stop. I want you to savor him. I want you to draw on him. I want you to think of him. I want you to watch him. I want you to keep your eye on him. I want you to know that the Lord is good. Therefore, I need you to, I need you to taste it. Just even a little bit longer, keep it on your tongue. Notice that God is good. Don't let God be a fleeting thought in your heart and mind. That same commentary goes on to say both Hebrews 6, 5 and 1 Peter 2, 3 use this verse to describe the first venture into faith and to urge that the tasting should be more than a casual sampling. Why does he see, why does he tell us to taste and see? Because he is calling us from merely having a a casual interaction with God and instead allowing our whole weight of trust be placed on him. This is a case, by the way, for all the world. You can understand that, I can understand people that will will deny God or reject God simply because they've never been taught. 
I can even understand somebody that that uh, doesn't see what I see when I look at the world or when I look at Scripture. I can understand that there are those whose eyes have been closed by Satan. The Bible tells us, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. I can understand that the world is lost and blinded in sin. Can I tell you, I do not understand those who have really, truly come in contact with God, truly tasted to see how good God is, and still turn their back on him. That's harder for me to understand because I've I've never found God to be anything less than good. David says the same. David is saying of God, when you truly taste him, when you truly savor him, when you truly interact with him for not just fleeting moments, but allow your heart to rest on him, you will find every time that he is good. He's good, by the way, He's good because we are not good. God is good because we are not good. In other words, there is something about the goodness of God that shines against our own goodness. He is good because we are not good. He's good because my sin is desperately wicked, yet God forgives me. He's good because even though I deserve the penalty of death and hell, I know that God has given me eternal life. I tell you, God is good because I'm not good. Compared to my goodness, he is all goodness and I am none. By the way, he is good because he is nothing less. He's good because he is nothing less. That God can be nothing less than good. Well, how would I find and interact with God in a way that shows that he is good? Well, you'll never find God as anything less than good. That's who he is. That's that's what he is by nature. The Bible describes him as love. The Bible describes him as light. The Bible describes him as life. And I tell you tonight that God is good because that is who God is. God is good. So what will we find when we taste of God? We will find that he is good. What will the lost and dying world find of him when they truly come into contact with him? They will find that our God is good. You see, we see that David is not only offering an invitation to share in a joyful testimony, but he is making a declaration of God's blessings. He's making a declaration of the blessings of God. The Bible says, blessed is the man that trusteth in him. David knew that those who will truly experience God will get the joy of placing their trust in God. When we encounter that soul-cleansing, sin-erasing, guilt-removing power of God, we will trust him to be just that, and that is good. I tell you tonight, there's three actions mentioned in this passage. I want you to see them with me. So if you take your Bible and go now to verse number 8 again, the Bible says this, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. God calls us in this text to trust in God. To trust in God. David goes on in verse number, uh, verse number 11. Come, ye children. Hearken unto me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. So we're told to trust in the Lord, and we're told to fear the Lord. The Bible goes on in verse number 12. What man is he that desireth life and loveth many days, that he may see that he is good? The Bible encourages us here that not only should we fear the Lord, but that we should seek 
the Lord. Can I tell you, we must know that God is good. I, I, want you to, I want you to see here, oh, excuse me, verse number 10, that's what I'm looking for here. Verse number 10, but they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. There are three commands given in this text, trust the Lord, fear the Lord, seek the Lord. We're to trust the Lord. The man will find that God is good if he will trust the Lord. He has a blessing for those who will trust the Lord. We're told to listen to the the psalmist because he will teach us how to fear the Lord. And then there is a blessing for those who will seek the Lord. I tell you here tonight that God has called us to trust. He has called us to fear. He has called us to seek. You think with me here this evening of the trust of the Lord. The Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. What is it for us to trust in the Lord? It is to refuse to trust in our own understanding. It is refused to, to trust in what we can see, just as David ended up before Abimelech acting the fool, acting crazy, acting like he'd lost his mind because he refused to trust God. So there are some who claim the name of Jesus tonight who live their lives as if they're insane. They live their lives as if they can have as much fear as the world and nothing will happen. I tell you, you can place your trust in Christ and you can know what it is to walk with him in trusting him. I tell you this evening, we're called to trust the Lord, to not lean on our own understanding, but instead to trust in him. The psalmist says, blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord. The Bible implores us in Proverbs chapter 9 and verse number 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. The the Proverbist calls on us, the one who's writing to hear Solomon is calling on us to listen to the the Lord and to fear him. That idea of respecting the Lord or or to putting putting our reverence in the Lord. I I heard a, a, a preacher some years ago who said that the fear of the Lord is probably the closest equivalent in the Old Testament to salvation in the New Testament. We use the idea of being saved. This idea of fearing the Lord is the closest Old Testament equivalent to putting your faith and trust in Jesus, to putting your faith and trust in the coming Messiah, that they would look for the the soon coming Messiah. And then they're called to seek the Lord. Proverbs 28.5 says, Evil men understand not judgment, but they that seek the Lord understand all things. You see, when we seek the Lord, we are demonstrating wisdom. The Bible gives us these three actions. I believe what he is doing is allowing us to understand either in quick progression what takes place in the life of a believer, or he is using synonymously three different phrases that you and I can, we kind of toss around in the Christian world. But I, went to, I, I really do believe that these texts, this, the way this text is written is not for us to understand these as three separate ideas, and if you'll do this one, then this one happens, and then this one happens. They're not progressive, but rather they are a way for the psalm to write all three of them as if they are synonymous with one another. In other words, in the psalmist's eyes, it is to trust the Lord is to fear the Lord. 
To trust him is to fear him. And by the way, that is a New Testament equivalence as well. The Bible makes clear for us in the, in the, old, the New Testament, we won't take time to go there tonight, but uh, the words that connect repentance and faith together in Scripture are often so uniquely close that it's almost as if to put your faith in Jesus is to repent of your sin. And that, in fact, is what it is. To, to put your faith in Jesus Christ is to repent of putting your trust in you. To put your faith in Jesus Christ is to repent from putting your trust in anything else. It's to turn your back on the, the old life that you once lived and instead to turn and put your faith in Jesus. And so the psalmist is saying here, he is saying to us to trust the Lord, to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is the same as no longer trying to fear any other God or to put your hopes or faith in anything other than God. Instead, to trust the Lord is to. It is the same as putting your fear in the Lord to reverence his word, to reverence his way, to respect his knowledge, to know that he sees all, knows all, and is all. You see, the idea of the psalmist here is that that the fear of the Lord is the same as trusting. And then when the Bible tells us to seek the Lord, he is telling us the same thing. He is telling us that if you fear the Lord, you are going to trust the Lord. If you trust the Lord, you are going to seek the Lord. If you seek the Lord, you are going to trust the Lord. If you trust the Lord, you are going to fear the Lord. And he is using these words to describe the same event or the same process, but he is using them so that we capture the full picture of what it means to have a relationship with the Lord. And he is calling on us to come and experience, to come and taste, to come and see. And how do I do that? How am I going to taste that the Lord is good? Come trust him. How am I going to see that the Lord is good? Come put your fear in him. How am I going to know that he is a good God? Come and seek him. You see, the psalm, this is helping us understand something. It's almost so theological at its basis that it turns into practice. The psalmist says, I I want you to come and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And somebody says, that's fine. It sounds all right to come and taste and see. But what in the world does that even mean? It means that when you begin to contemplate the Lord and you put your faith and your trust in him, you are fearing the Lord. And a man who has stopped fearing the Lord is the same man who stopped trusting him. And the same man who is willing to trust the Lord is the same man who is seeking him. I tell you here tonight that you and I are called not to leave God out on a distant place and not to leave him as some hope for the world, but rather that we would in practice, that we would seek him, we would trust him, we would know him, not through some list of perfunctory actions that we are supposed to do as Christians or non-Christians and go through some rigmarole. No, 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 my friend, it is quite simple. Trust God. Trust him. And if you truly trust God, no, 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 I'm not talking about check a box. Yep, I trust God. No, no, no. The soul that trusts God is also the one that fears him. The one that fears God is also the one who's seeking him. He's not asking for a hard, big, old, difficult thing. He's saying, if you'll come and taste and see that the Lord is good, you will be blessed and you will recognize that the only effort we must make is to know him, to trust him, and, to, and that we might even fear him. Tonight, God calls you to come and see that the Lord is good. You say, preacher, I already know that. Great. Then let us be those who take joy in honoring our God by inviting others to come and see for themselves.